This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist and I've lived and worked in Fayetteville, Arkansas for over 25 years. I'm so glad you're here. I started this podcast five years ago in order to reach out to those of you who might already be very interested in psychological and emotional issues, but would be interested in another perspective. To those of you who might have just been diagnosed with mental illness, or you're dealing with something that you're concerned about in the emotional realm, and you're looking for answers. But also to those of you who might say to friends, I'd never darken the door of a therapist, I think that's weak, but you might be unhappy enough to actually be curious and listen into self-work. Before we get started today, I want to remind you about a new podcast I'm doing called Self-Work Chat. It's on the Fireside app, which is a new app for interactive podcasting. All you have to do is go to firesidechat.com slash Margaret Rutherford and request access to Fireside. And once a week, I'll be coming on to answer your questions and to interact. Next week, in fact, we've decided just this morning to focus self-work chat on talking about borderline personality disorder in a very compassionate and understanding way, but people have a lot of questions. So again, it's firesidechat.com slash Margaret Rutherford. You have to request access right now. You have to have an iPhone, but they're working on Android. I'd love to see you and hear you over on self-work chat. Today's self-work podcast is all about answering your questions. We're going to talk about everything from fear of failure to negative forecasting to identifying depression when it's been chronic to what's termed maladaptive daydreaming. This episode is full of your questions and my answers, something we haven't done in quite a while. I used to be able to answer all your questions personally, but that sadly isn't possible anymore. I really hate that. But maybe episodes like this will make up for that. Just yesterday, I went to a play called Tiny Beautiful Things, a story about a woman named Sugar who writes an advice column. She mostly uses her own life, which had been very hard, as the basis for her answers. I was reminded by how much trust you demonstrate in me to ask me a question, and I'm honored more than you know. Her feedback was sometimes that her advice seemed contradictory. One time she talked about forgiveness, the next time she insisted on boundaries. So giving advice or suggestions or whatever is humbling. And just like sugar, I may contradict myself at times or give suggestions that miss the mark. We're all learning together. So thank you again for being here. So in this episode, sponsored by BetterHelp, we'll go on and dig into your questions, which are fascinating as always. Here's the first email. Recently, I started listening to your podcast, Self Work, and discovering I identify with almost all the 10 characteristics of perfectly hidden depression. This sounds silly, but I was scared to get the book in case someone would find it and see my life isn't perfect or think I'm just seeking attention. I've been listening to the audiobook and am a third way through. I'm definitely getting the book now because it's truly made me feel seen and heard for something other than working hard, being reliable, energetic, or perfect. I'm extremely perfectionistic at work, and I feel like I can't trust anyone to do anything, so I take on everything myself and extremely reluctant to delegate or ask for help when I really need it. 
In the past few months, I've been feeling extremely overwhelmed and exhausted from pushing myself to the limit, and I felt like there's no way that this is normal. I've been wanting to go back to school for the past two years. Lately, I tell people it's just because I haven't decided what I want to do. I don't want to spend all that time and money on a career I'm unsure about, but today I discovered it's because I'm just scared of failing. And because I'm scared of failure, I also hate change. This is just a small glimpse, but I've never confided in anyone about perfectly hidden depression, although I know what I'm feeling isn't normal. I just don't know how to go about finding a therapist that will understand PhD, and I would feel so silly getting dismissed because everything seems fine on the surface. Or should I talk to a friend first? So that was her email. I did quickly write back to this listener to make some suggestions about how to talk to a therapist about being so perfectionistic that you wouldn't be able to be real, and that was to simply state that at the outset, I'm going to struggle to let you in, or I've never let anyone see what I'm really like because I'm so afraid of being judged or rejected or shamed or whatever. And that's a good way to start for any of you, really, but especially you perfectionists out there. But I want to address this whole idea of how confusing it is to receive praise for something that you know in your gut is acting to hide something else. And Rex tell me that all the time. They get intense praise for being so thin when it's a terrible disease that is wreaking havoc with their emotional and mental and physical health. But here's the sentence that brought a tear to my eye. I'm definitely getting the book now because it has truly made me feel seen and heard for something other than working hard being reliable, energetic, or perfect. This young woman fears failure, but she's also so drawn, in fact, intensely relieved to be seen for something other than her accomplishment. Instead of being told she's important because she can get a lot of tasks done easily and quickly, the book is telling her she has value intrinsically, not for what she can do, but for who she is. And the thing that roped her into developing this perfectionistic persona was trauma, neglect, family dysfunction and rigidity, cultural mandates, whatever. You know, I haven't read Oprah's new book, but I saw her documentary with Harry or Prince Harry, whatever you call him. Their question is not, what's wrong with you anymore? But the title of the book is, What Happened to You? Over recent years, the mental health profession has swung so much into a medical model asking you about symptoms and counting them up to see if you can be diagnosed as depressed or anxious, bipolar, or having panic disorder, that we've forgotten the incredibly important and damaging role of trauma. What happened to you? Growing up in a home where you were abused or neglected, where you were expected to be the adult, where you were told you carried the family responsibility for success, whatever it was, that can be very damaging. So failure can become more than making a mistake and learning from it. When you learn that you are being counted on to be perfect, failure comes with an immense sense of shame. You tell yourself failure is unacceptable, but it's not. I got fired from my first job in a psychology clinic coming right out of graduate school. It was a very prestigious firm. I was miserable there, by the way, but I needed a job. I often think back on what they told me was the reason I was fired. Those words stuck with me for years to come and caused a lot of self-doubt. I felt like a failure. But I kept on. You can also work with and learn to manage your own fear of failure. Just take small steps. 
If you begin to do things that you don't know how to do, it's likely you won't do it well. I was a beginning therapist. I was making mistakes. But I wasn't failing. Just accept that failure is a part of making mistakes, and you learn from those mistakes, and that's okay. Here's the second email. I'm so grateful for your thoughts and insights. I've been working with a therapist for almost two years now and have enjoyed comparing your thought and hers to find healing and purpose for my emotions and triggers. I have a question about negative forecasting. This has come up at a few sessions, but I don't feel as if I'm understanding it fully. I would like to learn more about exactly how to change the thought process for this negative forecasting and other cognitive thinking errors. I think that's an interesting way to use self-work, actually, to be in therapy yourself and then to compare and contrast. And we may disagree, we may agree, but, you know, it's very helpful to have different perspectives. Interestingly, I'd not heard of this particular term, negative forecasting, but cognitive behavioral therapy has branched into all kinds of other therapies, DBT and what's called cognitive reprocessing therapy now. So it may stem from one of those. Catastrophizing or negative forecasting is anxiety on steroids. I've heard it from all kinds of clients. They might have physical pain, emotional pain, and they're convinced the pain will never end or fade. They catastrophize. They see the worst thing that could happen, and they believe that could be true. A parent whose child is struggling with something unexpected and difficult, a military or first responder spouse who knows their partner will be killed in the line of duty, all of that obviously could happen, but when you think the worst is going to happen and you forecast that, that's called catastrophizing. But when I was researching this, I thought this article was interesting as it discussed three conditions where catastrophizing may be more likely. First, if there's ambiguity, like say you get a text message from a friend and they say, we need to talk. This vague message could be something positive or negative. We need to talk. (laughs) It's all in the intonation, isn't it? But you can't know which of these it's going to be with just the information you have. So if you're a negative forecaster or a catastrophizer, you imagine the very worst news first. The second condition that might make catastrophizing more prominent is value. Relationships and situations that a person holds in high value can result in a tendency to catastrophize. When something is particularly significant, The concept of a loss or difficulty can be harder to deal with. For example, let's say you really want a job. I mean, it would be super for you to get it. So you start to imagine great disappointment or anxiety or even grief because you're not going to get the job and you catastrophize. And you do that before this organization has made any decisions. That's irrational. That's catastrophizing. And then the third condition that enhances the uh, probability of catastrophizing is fear, especially irrational fear. If a person is scared of going to the doctor, for example, they could start to think about all the bad things a doctor could tell them, even if they were just going for a checkup. Sometimes, obviously, if you've gotten bad news, let's say your cancer has been in remission and you have a lot of foreboding about going in for testing, that's not necessarily catastrophizing. That may be some post-traumatic stress, but it's based more in reality because there was a moment in time when you got bad news. But I'm going to add two other conditions that might set catastrophizing up. First, struggle with a lack of control. Worry can often make someone feel that it's preventing harm from happening to someone they love. That's what helicopter parenting is mostly. 
So if you can't control the outcome or no amount of worry will cause something to be fixed, then you'll catastrophize. The fifth condition would be unresolved grief. Maybe something truly horrible happened or almost happened to you. If you've never grieved that, if you've never forgiven yourself whatever you believe was your part, if any, in that event, then you can easily predict the worst in the present. You have to work on this on many levels. But perhaps the best thing you can do, in my opinion, is to try to detach yourself from these thoughts, to view the catastrophizing almost as if you were watching an old movie reel in your head. I notice that I'm thinking the worst. You can slowly begin to detach more and more. Look for what you actually have control over and do that thing. Before we go any further, let's hear a quick message from BetterHelp. I'm always honored when one of you reaches out to me to ask, hey, could I see you? Unfortunately, right now I can only see people in Arkansas, but I do have a suggestion for you. I've personally found that BetterHelp, the leading online therapeutic counseling service, is really a great option. And I've partnered with them here at SelfWork to provide you with a professional, very affordable, and trustworthy source of help, no matter where you live. In fact, BetterHelp has been a sponsor of SelfWork for more than a year, and I can't tell you how much it's meant to have their help and support here on the program. But of course, before any kind of relationship happened, I tried BetterHelp myself. They use only licensed therapists, meaning licensed professional counselors, social workers, marriage and family therapists, probably even some psychologists, and they match you up with someone likely in the same state as you if you're here in the United States. But I want to talk about what really stood out for me. I saw two different counselors, or (laughs) I didn't see them, but I worked with them. For one thing, it was very convenient, and they both tried their best to meet my schedule. The second thing was, you know, those of you on the podcast often write reviews or send me emails that say, hey, I really like that you make direct suggestions on what to try, real tangible recommendations. And the two counselors I tried did that as well. It's not that empathy and a listening ear isn't valuable. Sometimes we all can benefit from working through emotions in a safe relationship. However, I believe you get hope when you see yourself handling emotions that previously you couldn't, or maybe you speak up in meetings where before you didn't care enough to, or maybe your confidence was shot. You want to be able to see real change in yourself. Both of them actually offered worksheets for me to use to get a little deeper into things outside of the session. So I walked away with ideas. You know, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, and everyone's lives have been challenged to a lesser or greater extent for a year or more. So that's the backdrop we all have to deal with. And BetterHelp wants to be there for you. But also, because you listen to self-work, you do have a really good offer for them. You'll receive a 10% discount on your first month of service if you use this code, trybetterhelp.com slash self-work. That's trybetterhelp.com slash self-work. And you'll find a counselor uniquely chosen for your preferences and needs. And then, of course, write me and let me know how it goes. If your first counselor isn't a great fit for you, they'll find somebody else just like in non-online therapy. And after all, so many counselors are only working online these days, and BetterHelp isn't expensive. So try BetterHelp, because reaching out can be so vital to your mental health. And here's our next email, and this one's on when depression has been chronic. She says, I hope all is well with you. I'm just going to type. I've been searching for podcasts about self-help for the past few days. I finally stumbled upon your podcast this morning. Your voice is calming beyond words. Your wisdom is fulfilling. Thank you for that, of course. 
I had been depressed for a very long time, and I'm sure I was before I even knew what depression was. I also believe I suffer from anxiety disorder and OCD. I'm around 30 years old. I've been on Lexapro for the last eight years. Before that, I was on and off other depression anxiety medicines before I figured out which suited me best. I've also tried different therapists over the years without success. Currently, though, I'm seeing a therapist that I really like. I started seeing her about three or four months ago, and I believe she's good for me. My girlfriend and I recently broke up this past weekend. We've been together for over two years. We love each other deeply. However, we are both fighting demons and have come off track in our relationship. We've come to terms that what is best for our partnership and individual selves now and for the future is to not be together so we can do the work we need to do and heal ourselves and focus on ourselves. I'm not really sure what I'm expecting to get out of this email. My gut and heart told me to reach out to you. I feel broken and devastated, but also hopeful. And here's my response. First of all, wow, you're a real fighter if you've had depression since before you can remember, and you've tried all that you've tried, and you've kept on trying. I want to remind you of what I said earlier in the podcast. Something likely has happened to you at a very young age that now, as an adult, is making the creation of emotional intimacy with another difficult. That could be something as basic as parents who didn't make you feel safe. I don't mean that you had to listen to intense fighting all the time. They just didn't make you feel safe. And that may be why you literally don't remember feeling anything but depressed because it's been going on so long. It might mean that your parents were immature or they were poor and working three jobs or they had addictions. I've had people tell me that their parents only had time for each other. Their children were an afterthought. Why they had them is confusing. These kinds of parental deficiencies are rampant and cause what's termed attachment problems. Basically, What attachment means is how your primary caregiver was attuned to you or cared for your needs. How you come to trust and know the world around you is based on this attachment. So, you can turn out with problems if that attachment was poor. You can be too needy. You can both want attachment and avoid it all at the same time. You might want to look up attachment theory. It's also possible that you had early trauma that you've ignored, discounted, or plain forgotten. I went to a workshop years ago on trauma, and one of the first things the speaker mentioned was medical procedures in infancy as trauma, and I was shocked. I'd had my tonsils out when I was very young, a little over one. I hate to be held down. It's like my life depends on getting out of someone's grasp. I began to make a connection that I'd never made, that me having my tonsils out, and most likely back in 1955, My parents weren't allowed to be in the hospital overnight, and so I very likely might have been tied down or held down, and that was likely trauma for me. So I think it's a good idea that you and your partner are taking a break and deciding to work on these things that may be so far in the background that you don't remember them consciously. Our fourth and last question for today is actually a speak pipe voicemail. Let's hear from her. Hello, Dr. Margaret. Just wanted to say thank you for your wonderful podcasts. Your voice is so soothing, and I'm learning a lot about psychology and therapy. With that said, I was wondering if you could have maybe an episode on something called maladaptive daydreaming. 
I heard the term used frequently, and I'm not quite sure what it means. In my own life, I tend to quite frequently daydream, imagine certain things, you know, fantasize about stuff, but I never thought that it was somehow bad. But maybe does it become bad at one point? You know, it doesn't interfere with my function right now, but maybe it is bad to constantly live in a fantasy. Um, just wanted to know what you think. Thank you. As I said in the intro, one of the reasons I love your questions is that you often bring up a term I don't know. And maladaptive daydreaming was one of them. So here are the symptoms of maladaptive daydreaming. Common symptoms include extremely vivid daydreams that have their own characters, settings, plots, and other detailed story-like features. They could be daydreams that are triggered by real-life events. A symptom is also difficulty completing everyday tasks because of daydreaming. You also could have difficulty sleeping at night. You have an overwhelming desire to continue daydreaming. When I read this, I thought, gosh, it's kind of like a video game in your head. We know about video game addiction, and it's almost like an addiction to the video in your head, right? A symptom could be performing repetitive movements while you daydream, making facial expressions while you daydream. You whisper and talk, and then you do it for many minutes to hours. That's maladaptive daydreaming. But certainly, it doesn't seem that this listener's daydreaming fits these criteria at all, since the last thing she says is, it doesn't really affect my life. Now let's talk a little bit about dissociation. You can think of dissociation as your mind traveling away from one focus to another. For example, I have had people who've been sexually abused tell me that they feel like their mind floats up to the top of the room, and it's like they're watching the abuse from above. And when it's over, their mind comes back. It is a way, I think, of the mind protecting itself with abuse. But if this abuse is severe, it obviously can turn into what's called dissociative identity disorder, what used to be called multiple personality disorder. And this is far too complex a subject to talk about in this particular episode. Mostly the one to remember is that in maladaptive daydreaming, you realize I'm having a fantasy and it's in my head and I'm watching it, I'm enjoying it, and I'm creating some of the twists and turns, but I know it's not real. The only other thing I might add here is that if you're spending more time daydreaming about a goal or a purpose, living a life in your fantasy rather than looking for opportunity in your present world, then perhaps even daydreaming there's a problem because you're not living in the present. But basically, if this listener's life is going on and she just loves to spend a lot of time daydreaming, as long as it doesn't negatively impact her life, she's okay. And again, it's on a spectrum. I hope that's helpful. Thank you for being here at Self Work, and thanks again for these great questions. I want to thank those of you who've left ratings on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. That really means a lot. Of course, that's the largest platform, and so your ratings reach more people that way. But I, you know, ratings and reviews are great anywhere. And I want to read this one. Where do I start? Thank you, Dr. Margaret. I love absolutely everything you offer. Your weekly newsletters, your self-work podcast, your Facebook group, your fireside chat, your book title, Perfectly Hidden Depression. Thank you so much for touching 
based on such tough yet necessary topics while being direct yet compassionate and encouraging. That's from Pigon. <laughs> so thank you, Pigon. I appreciate that. Of course, my book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, which we've talked about today, is on sale still. It's an ebook, it's an audio book, it's a paperback, and I'd love to get your feedback on it. I want to mention once again that I've got a new podcast on Fireside, and you can reach it by going to firesidechat.com slash Margaret Rutherford and request access if you have an iPhone. I'm very grateful you were here today. Please take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.